The reading is from Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 41, and can be found on page 1056, if you're using the church Bibles. Luke chapter 20. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you speak to your children. We thank you for the reading of your word that we have just heard. And as we think together about what you're saying to us tonight, we pray that you will speak. Not just to our minds, but to our hearts. Not just to change the way that we think, but the way that we live. The way that we relate to you and to each other. So be with us, we pray. Send your spirit on us to make your word alive. In Jesus' name. Amen. There have been lots of stories about the Queen recently, haven't there? And I think one of my favourites was uh, the story told by uh, a former royal protection officer. He told it uh, around the time of the Jubilee. It seems like so long ago now, doesn't it? But um, he was interviewed by various news outlets, and they said, oh, you know, Her Majesty the Queen has a great sense of humour, doesn't she? And he said, oh, yes, yes, she does. Uh, and then the sort of, you know, the fatal question, do you have any examples? And you can imagine that uh, most of us in a situation like that, when asked to describe how funny our funny friend is, we, we, we dry up. But he said, yes, I've got lots of examples. Do you want to hear any? <laughs> And the interviewer said, oh, yes, please. So Richard Griffin said, well, my favorite one was we used to um, uh, go up to Balmoral just for, for a weekend uh, before the Queen began hosting people there. Uh, and we'd go off into the hills for a picnic, sometimes just her and me. Uh, the Queen could never be completely alone, could she? So she'd at least have uh, her one uh, main protection officer with her. He said it was a great privilege to go on those picnics with the Queen and we'd have a lovely time. Uh, he said, but on one occasion we met two hikers. Uh, they, were on a, they were on a walking holiday. Uh, they were from uh, the United States of America. Uh, and uh, the Queen, as she always did, uh, greeted them and began a conversation with them. She asked where they were from and uh, they told her. Uh, and they said, what about you? Where are you from? And she said, well, I live in London. But I do have a holiday home just over that hill. I've been coming, actually, since uh, I was a little girl, about 80 years. And he said, you could see the, the cogs whirring. And they said, oh, but if you've been coming here 80 years, you must have met the queen. 
And she said, nay, nay, never. But, uh, but their kisses are quite often. <laughs> well, they weren't going to miss an opportunity for a photo. So they said to the queen, oh, could you just hold the camera and take a photo of us with, with, with Dick here? People won't believe it when we say we've met someone who's met the queen. So the queen uh, took the photograph and then Dick kind of uh, subtly uh, sort of switched places so that they got a photo with the queen as well. And as they receded into the distance on their walk, she turned to him and said, I would love to be a fly on the wall. When they show those photos to their friends back home, I just hope there's someone who can tell them who I am. That kind of story of mistaken identity can be quite funny, can't it? Meeting someone, not really knowing who they are. Uh, And so your responses are all wrong. You you take a photo of the bodyguard rather than of the queen. And in a sense, that's what's going on here in Luke. All the way through Luke chapter 20, the big question is identity. Who is Jesus? He's marched in chapter 19 into Jerusalem uh, to in, in, in a kind of festival procession. He's been welcomed as the king, as the Messiah by his followers. And the religious leaders have been distinctly unimpressed. He's, they said to Jesus, why don't you rebuke your followers? And he, he says to them, well, if they were silent, then the stones, the trees would cry out. And then Jesus goes to the temple and he kind of throws the money lenders out of the temple, says, this is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers and thieves. And then the questions start. The religious leaders start going for Jesus. Okay, Jesus, if you're doing this kind of thing, by whose authority do you do this? Who gave you authority? And Jesus refuses to answer their question. Instead, he tells them a story about a vineyard who's Owner sends messengers to the tenants asking for rent. And messenger after messenger is rejected and turned away, sometimes treated shamefully, sometimes even beaten. The owner of the vineyard then says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. But the, the, the tenants in the vineyard say, look, it's the son and the heir. If we kill him, we can have the vineyard to ourselves. So they kill him and throw his body out of the vineyard. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. The religious leaders are out for his blood. But the questions continue. Even after he reveals just how well he knows them, they show that they don't know him at all. They start asking him more trick questions to try to trip him up. They ask a question about taxation. about whether the people should pay taxes to Caesar, a foreign occupying force. And Jesus answers the question in such a way as somehow seemingly to shine the spotlight back on them. Uh, So then another group of them ask another question, bound to trip him up this time. A question about uh, a, a woman who's married to a man who dies, uh, and then under the law of Moses, his brother has to marry her. And in fact, it's one bride for seven brothers and they get to the end of the list and they say, okay, well, in the resurrection then, Jesus, who will she be married to? To show that Jesus' teaching about the resurrection 
must be false if the Jewish scriptures, which he claims to believe, are to be listened to. It seems ridiculous if you have that sort of marriage arrangement. Ridiculous that there could possibly be a resurrection. She's going to have seven husbands. But again, Jesus answers the question in such a way that he begins to turn the spotlight on them. And says, well, you see, your problem, of course, is that you haven't understood Moses at all. Because the resurrection is completely different. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But in the age to come, there is no marriage. There's no need of it. Instead of having sons and daughters, everyone who is deemed worthy of the resurrection, and Jesus kind of hints again at the problem, they will be called the children of God. Jesus' answer is so compelling uh, that uh, in verse uh, 32, please do look at it if you've uh, got Luke chapter 20 open in front of you. And if you haven't got Luke chapter 20 in front, open in front of you, now would be a brilliant moment to, to open it up at page 1056. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And so no one dared to ask him any more questions. Question time is over. The press conference has finished. No one's been able to trap him. And yet somehow they've got caught in the glare of his spotlight every time. And now suddenly, in verse 41, Jesus asks a question. Okay, if we're asking questions, says Jesus, about how we understand the scriptures. Here's one for you. You're waiting for a Messiah who will be the son of David. So riddle me this. Why is it that the Messiah is the, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? To stick with the queen for a moment, it's like imagining that she would walk into the room and curtsy in front of Charles. It would be a terrible breach of protocol. Well, well, so it was in ancient Israelite society. The son must honor the father. So how can Jesus be the son of David when David... Well, Rather, how can the Messiah be the son of David when David honors the Messiah in this psalm and calls him my Lord? How can it be? In a highly honor-bound society, the son honors the father, treats the father as greater, might even call the father Lord, but not the other way around. In fact, if you were to hear Psalm 110 read in Hebrew, you'd see there's even a, a slightly deeper thing going on here. So if, if you 
we'll just to, to sort of read it. It says, uh, Yahweh, that is the, the, the personal name of God, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But the personal name of God is so holy to Jewish people that when you read that word in Hebrew, you say Adonai. And if you ever hear the, the Jewish scriptures being read, whenever that name occurs, instead the, the lector, the reader, will say Adonai. Uh, and so if you hear Psalm 110 read out, it says Adonai says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. How can it be that David affords that kind of honor to his descendant? It's a bit like the question about the seven brothers. It reveals that the understanding of scripture they have doesn't work. Just as they're trying to reveal that his doesn't. That he can't possibly believe in what Moses taught and in the resurrection. So he shows that what they think about the Messiah doesn't really work. How can he be David's son? Who's the son here? And whose son is the son? If that's not too confusing. I think in some ways it's a bit like this. One spring... Uh, when Sam and I were, were first married, uh, there was, uh, I was very pleased. It was in the days before your phone or your, you know, various sort of internet connected devices uh, would automatically change the time for you when the clocks changed. So I was really pleased with myself that I knew what day the clocks changed. And before we went to bed that night, we put all of our clocks back an hour and uh, we went and we enjoyed a bit of a lie-in, turned up at church bright and early to see various people leaving. And we couldn't really make sense of it. Uh, and we went into the church. It was a church plant. It was meeting in a school. And none of the chairs were out. Because normally you'd, people would turn up early and get the chairs out ready for the service. Well, there were no chairs out. And people were just sort of milling around, chatting to each other. A friend of mine was the pastor of the church, and I took him aside and I said, Neil, mate, what's going on? Why, why aren't we ready for church? And I should have known from the look on his face. He said, you are joking. I wasn't quick enough. I said, no. He said, Nick, you know the clocks go forward in the spring, don't you? I had been feeling terribly self-righteous and like everyone else was getting it wrong. They were leaving church when they should have been arriving. They hadn't set out. They were just standing around chatting before the service. But actually, I was the one who was completely in the wrong. I was just two hours late for church. I mean, it was a great day. I went straight from breakfast to lunch. I'm not going to complain. <laughs> but I couldn't process what was happening in front of me because I was trying to fit it into a grid... That didn't line up with reality. And Jesus is saying to these people, look, you are looking at things with earthly eyes, from an earthly point of view. And you're trying to fit what God's word says about the Messiah into that grid. 
And it doesn't work, does it? You can't make sense of it. You've completely skipped over for all these years. You've completely skipped over Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. The Messiah is not junior to David. The Messiah is David's Lord. So Jesus says, how can he be David's son? They don't have an answer. But Luke's gospel does have an answer. Jesus does have an answer to that question. Is Jesus the son of David? Is he really a descendant of David? Well, the blind man who cries out to Jesus in chapter 18, at verse 38, I need to bring my glasses, called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls it out again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and says, what do you want? Lord, I want to see. And Jesus says, go, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Jesus says, you're absolutely right. I am the son of David. And in fact, right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, in, in the passages that are so familiar to us, if we attend church at Christmas, this is what the angel says to Mary. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then a moment later, the angel says, chapter one, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This stuff isn't hidden away in, in Luke's gospel. Right at the beginning, we're told this is the story of Jesus, who is the son of David, but is also the son of God. And son of God trumps son of David. In fact, this really is God in human form. So in chapter 19, just before our passage, this is what Jesus says to those who reject him at his coming talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that will follow. He says, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So as Jesus challenges them about the identity of the Messiah, what he is saying to them is, the reason you can't accept me is because you're trying to fit God's promised Messiah into your kind of earthbound way of thinking. And you cannot imagine that it is possibly true that God himself could come to you as one born of David and yet greater than David. Both David's son and David's Lord. Now, we don't have a huge amount of time this evening to go into why it's so significant that Jesus is both fully, truly human and fully, truly divine. But I will say this. It is only God who can remake a broken world. God is the one who made the world. He's the only one who has the blueprint and the power to put it back the right way up. After sin twisted and broke it. 
only God himself can really be our saviour. And yet the, the line that runs all the way through Luke 20 is this theme of Jesus' impending death. The religious leaders want him dead and Jesus says, I will die. He says to them, to the crowds who are sort of horrified at what he says about the religious leaders killing him, he says, it has to be fulfilled, this prophecy that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He has come to be rejected and killed. And yet his exaltation will follow. He will be sat at the right hand of the Father. He's come to die and only someone who is truly human can die for humans, can carry the cost of human sin on his shoulders. Now, if that's a strange concept to you, it's it's the idea that we've turned away from our maker and brought catastrophe on ourselves as a result. And Jesus comes and stands in the way of that and bears that catastrophe himself as a human being who can rightly bear the catastrophe that human beings have brought on themselves. So that's why it matters that he is both David's son and David's Lord. But in the immediate context, what he's talking about takes on a much more threatening hue. These religious leaders who are trying to kill him as an imposter, look what Jesus says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Stories about mistaken identity are often quite funny, aren't they? But not always, or at least not to the people they happen to. When I was 21, I found myself at dinner with a group of people. I'm not going to... I hate this story so much that I'm not going to tell you all of it or where the people were from. Uh, But uh, I was talking to a lovely young couple who were from overseas, shall we say. And the topic uh, of a famous pair of brothers who were very well-known preachers and theologians uh, came up. And if you'd known me when I was 21, you'd have known exactly where to come if you needed an opinion. And so I freely shared my opinions about both these great men. Imagine how I felt when our host came up to me at the end of the evening and said, you do realize that you were talking to X's daughter, don't you? Sorry, I do genuinely still shudder. You you know people talk about wanting, wanting the ground to open up and swallow you. I couldn't think of that. I was just trying not to be sick. These people are trying to kill the Son of God. And in so doing, who are they making their enemy? The living God who made the universe. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until I, that is the living God, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until I bring them low and crush them underneath your feet. It crackles with menace, doesn't it? They think they're the ones with the whip hand. They think they're the ones who are going to bring death and destruction to this upstart. 
But this upstart is the son of the living God. They are making an enemy of God himself. It's chilling. What's going on, on the surface it looks like powerful people are going to crush a, a, a peasant from the sticks. But what's going on in reality is far, far different. So then Jesus turns to the people and his disciples and says, beware the teachers of the law. They love to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. He says, be careful, these are dangerous people. They look great, don't they, with their flowing robes. Now, the thing about flowing robes is they're not the sort of thing you wear if you're going to do a hard day's work. They're a sign of status, of significance. I don't have to get mud under my fingernails. Look at my flowing robes. I'm an important, wealthy person. They love honor. They love to be honored. They love to be significant. Says Jesus, their hearts are far from God. Look at verse 47. What a devastating thing to say. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. In public, they're all spirituality. But in private, they grind the faces of the poor into the dust. They exploit the most vulnerable. And throughout the First Testament, the Old Testament of the Bible, God is particularly concerned with the care of widows. They represent the most vulnerable people in society. To be a widow, a widow in uh, ancient Near Eastern culture was to be completely unprotected and unprovided for. If the community didn't look out for you, you had no hope. And these religious leaders are screwing everything they can out of those people. For a show, they make lengthy prayers, but in reality, their hearts are dark. And what they do is disgusting. Here's the point. It's all very well. And, you know, believe me, as, as a religious leader, I, I read these words and shudder that such could be true of me. But you see, here's the point. They, they, they pretend to love God in order to get money, in order to get influence, in order to get status. For a show, they make lengthy prayers, but what they're really about is taking from those who have nothing. They say they love God, but really they love money and power and status. And Jesus says they will be most severely punished. Well, what about those of us in the room who aren't 
religious leaders. Well, I guess what Jesus is doing is getting right to the heart of the real problem of what sin actually is. It's not just that it's hypocrisy. It's all about what you love. You see, God made you. And he has given you every good thing you have ever had and ever will have. Every breath you breathe is a gift from him. And the natural and right response would be to love him and worship him forever. But the reality of sin is that we love other things and treat other things as if they were God. It's what the Bible calls idolatry, treating something that's not God as if it was God and refusing to treat God as if he truly is. And Jesus' encounter with those religious leaders is a worked example in it. They reject him, the one who is truly God, and instead they worship money and status. In fact, they worship themselves. That's what sin is. And to be truthful with you, that's what the Bible says is naturally the state of each one of our hearts here tonight. Absolutely not excluding mine. And to hear those words from Psalm 110 is chastening. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a hugely important verse in the New Testament of the Bible, quoted from uh, the 110th Psalm. It's actually the, the verse that the Apostle Peter took for the first ever Christian sermon. In Acts chapter 2, This is what he says to the gathered people. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, for all those whom the Lord our God will call. Here's the astonishing truth of it. Jesus died because of the sins of the teachers of the law. He died because of my sins too. And astonishingly, it's his death that brings about the forgiveness of all who turn to him. Cut to the heart. They said, brothers, what should we do? How can we put this right? And Peter says, you don't have to put it right. He already has. Repent, be baptized, turn to him. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself come to live in you, to begin to change your heart, to change your life from the inside out. I hate to leave you with a cliffhanger, but next week, in looking at chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, we're going to look at the way that Jesus sums up everything that's happened in chapter 20. And instead of the awful example of the religious leaders, we're going to get the beautiful example of, guess what? A widow. But that's 
another story for another time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so astonishingly merciful. When Jesus exposes the reality of what sin is actually like, none of us would want that to be true of us. Lord, I hate the fact that that is true of me. And yet you knew just that about us. And that's why Jesus came. So that we could be forgiven. That we might become a home for you to live in by your spirit. That you would transform us and change us. Oh Lord, bring that home to us tonight, we pray. Don't let us hide from just how ugly sin is. But Lord, as we see that, may that just make the beauty of our Savior shine all the brighter, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.